WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're unpacking the 2023 municipal elections in the city of Wilmington and the towns of Curie Beach, Carolina Beach, and Wrightsville Beach. Later on the show, we'll sit down with New Hanover County Party Chair Jill Hopman to discuss her party's sweep of the Wilmington City Council election and what that might mean for upcoming elections in 2024. We'll also sit down with my colleague Kelly Kinoyer to unpack that race from our point of view as journalists and dig a little into campaign finance and some of the campaign issues that helped shape the race. But first, we're going to talk about voter turnout and those beach town elections with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to talk about voter turnout in the 2023 municipal election. Here we're talking about Curie Beach, Carolina Beach, Wrightsville Beach, and the city of Wilmington. First, I want to get into early voting. So these are the one-stop voting, early voting days leading up to the election. How did things play out? So 5% of our registered voter population turned out in those 15 days of early voting. But if you look at 2021, it was 6%, so down slightly We have some circumstances that we're looking at. They only opened Northeast, the library, first. They didn't open the three other sites until a week after Northeast opened. We also had voter ID. Did that contribute? But then we have the elections director, Ray Hunter Haven, saying that there weren't many of those photo ID exception forms filled out. And we know that other factors could have contributed. And then there's some party differentiation, too. Yeah. So all things considered, fewer people showed up both, you know, in terms of percentages and numbers to early voting. That could have been in part because there was only one place to participate in early voting for the first portion of that period. And it could have been because unlike 2021, we did not have a hotly contested race for mayor of Wilmington. But drilling down into party participation in early voting, it looks like, from the numbers you crunched for us, Democratic voters basically held steady, about 7%. Republican voters were down 6 to 4%. Unaffiliated voters are also down 4 to 3%. And I think that's really interesting, given maybe kind of a change in attitude towards early voting in Republicans. Yeah, that's right. We've talked to some politicians that said on the Republican side that they did try to push early voting. And even after the results came out for the municipal elections, we had a statewide GOP call to that they did really focus on early voting, but the numbers just didn't turn out. And we should say that, especially for the city of Wilmington election, we are dealing with a higher concentration of Democratic voters. And so those numbers might skew a little bit, but we are looking at 2021 and 2023. So we're looking at, it's as close to an apples to apples comparison as we can get. And we did see a decrease in Republican turnout and early voting. But moving on to the day of the election, November 7th, how do numbers look? And of course, we are recording this before the final canvas on Friday, uh, November 17th. But based on the numbers we have right now, how do things look? New Hanover County had close to 21% of our voter population that turned out. And the last cycle, it was 24%. So mimicking 
the early voting, that it was down slightly. And I will say, going back to early voting, that that was kind of a harbinger as well in the 2022 elections. We kind of saw who turned out early to vote, and it did reflect on Election Day, which is interesting. So following those numbers are a good indication of how potentially Election Day is going to go. But yeah, talking about New Hanover County, not the best, but we looked at Brunswick County and it was close to 19%. Last election cycle, it was close to 25%. And we have compiled data going back to 2015. And Brunswick County has always been above 22%. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to see that drop. And that's something, you know, after the the canvas and the votes are finalized, I think that's something we're going to be looking further into, because that could be a trend we want to keep our eyes on. Um, What about Pender County? Yeah, Pender County was close to 24%. And their last cycle, they kind of flip-flopped with Brunswick County, was 16%. A lot of more voters came out this election cycle than compared to last. So moving into our uh, New Hanover County municipal elections, let's look at Carolina Beach. First of all, uh, there was a, uh, a race for mayor. How did that turn out? Yes, so incumbent Mayor Lynn Barbie, he won. Uh, he won 50% of the vote as of the 15th. Um, You know, all election results aren't official until the 17th, but we can say that this looks pretty strong. And it was 50% out of four candidates. That's right. Yeah. And the second person behind him was um, challenger Michelle Alberta. She won 41% of the vote. That was followed by Chad Kirk, who won close to 7% of the vote. And Tyler McDowell was about 2%. And it's interesting because Tyler McDowell did come to our forum. He went to other candidate forums and showed his face, but Chad Kirk didn't go to two of the candidate forums um, that were hosted. Um, So he really didn't run a campaign. So before we leave Carolina Beach, let's talk about the council race. Yes, Deb LeCompte, there were, she won 46% of the vote and Jay Healy won 36%. And both of those incumbents got seats on the town council. And they were challenged by Danny McLaughlin, but like Chad Kirk, he was not running an active campaign. He didn't attend forums to talk about his issues. So, and and when we go talk about campaign finance in a little bit, you see Lynn Barbie and Jay Healy and Deb LeCompte bringing in money and spending money on their campaigns. They were committed to retaining their seats. Yeah, I'll, all I'll say about that is if there's anywhere you shouldn't run an absentee campaign, it's probably Carolina Beach. They'll notice. Yes, it's they not, will. Not a big town. Yeah. Um, speaking of not big towns, let's talk about Curie Beach real quick. Yes. So we have Alan Oliver. He ran unopposed, and so he won close to 89% of the vote, and there were about close to 11% write-ins. They're not listed quite yet. So he won, obviously, the mayoral seat, but they had a healthy competition for the um, town council. And newcomer Connie Merkel won 31% of the vote, and that was followed by longtime resident, and he's been on the council, David Hegler, 29%. Dennis Panicali, he was an incumbent. He was appointed to that seat but had to run again. He got close to 22% of the vote. And Tracy Mitchell, she won 17% of the vote. And what's interesting is that the GOP did endorse Tracy Mitchell and David Hegler. In this race, the Democratic Party, I, I confirmed with the chair, Jill Hopman, that they didn't support anybody specifically in this race. 
So yeah, an interesting mix of results there with incumbents and, and challengers. Let's move on to Wrightsville Beach. Now, we should note that uh, Wrightsville Beach candidates sort of declined to come to our forum, and we didn't get a chance to maybe hear as much as we might want about their policies. But we can say that incumbency is very strong in Wrightsville Beach. A lot of these names and faces we've become quite familiar with over the years. But how did the election results turn out? Yes, yeah, so incumbent mayor Daryl Mills won 55% of the vote, and he is the mayor. But he was challenged by Henry Temple, who got 44%, and that is a lot closer than in 2021 when Daryl Mills won 85% of the vote to Greg Buscemi. Um, he got 13% of the vote. And Again, we had an uncontested race in the town council. Zeke Parton and Jeff DeGroote won their seats. Again, they weren't challenged by anybody. And then the last election cycle in 2021, it was uncontested with Kendall and Hank Miller. And I will say less than 900 votes cast altogether for the mayor's race in Riceville Beach. If you've been there in the summer, you might think, oh, this is a town of five, 6,000. But really, a lot of those homes are second homes or their vacation rentals. And so if you're motivated and you want to bring some new ideas in the Wrightsville Beach election, really, you could go and shake hands with everyone you needed to make a difference in one day. So it is it is an interesting race to watch. But this year, I think we saw incumbency hold fast. And it was interesting. I interviewed Connie Merkel, who won one of the town council seats. She got the top, um, she was the top vote getter. And she said that's how she won, interestingly. She said, I just did the old school canvassing. I went door to door and asked people to for their vote, and I introduced who I was. And it sounded like she got through almost 500 homes. Yeah, and I'll just leave it by saying that is one of the reasons, as journalists, we like to cover uh, the beach towns, because that is something you can't do in Wilmington, let alone a larger metro area like Charlotte. You just can't go to, like, 90,000 homes. <laughs> it's not possible. But it is possible in the beach towns. But, okay, let's talk about campaign finance. So there was essentially no fundraising done in Wrightsville Beach and Curie Beach, but there was money raised and spent in Carolina Beach. Lynn Barbie, in total, for this election cycle, he raised about close to $5,200, and he raised about $1,250 right before the end of the campaign cycle. Jay Healy, he is a town council candidate that we were talking about. He raised about $1,800. And for Deb LeCompte, she was the top fundraiser in the town for her town council seat at ninety. $700. So that gives you a picture of what kind of money was spent. Yeah. And I know that folks have mixed feelings about this because campaign finance is always a touchy spot. People feel like it kind of pollutes the democratic spirit. But on the other hand, you need to be able to get your message out. And that costs money, whether it's mailers or billboards or TV ads, which get really crazy expensive. And we want to put this in a little bit of perspective here. At Carolina Beach, we're talking about less than $10,000 per candidate. You move to the city of Wilmington, we saw some bigger numbers. We saw sort of the middle-of-the-pack candidates raising high 20s, low 30,000s, and John Lennon, a uh, Republican challenger, raising over $100,000. Just looking back at the 2022 election for the hotly contested State Senate District 7, the race between Marsha Morgan and incumbent Republican Michael Lee brought in over $3 million dollars 
in terms of campaign fundraising. So we're going from Carolina Beach with a couple thousand dollars to the city of Wilmington with $100,000. Right. To a state race where we're talking about millions. So if you like campaign finance, buckle up because next year is going to be a lot. That's right. And Ben and I will be on those numbers. All right. So we got a couple minutes left. Let's talk about what's to come for next year's election, because we do have some changes. There's you know, some moving parts going on here. So I interviewed the Board of Elections Director, Ray Hunter Havens, and she's already starting to recruit for poll workers right now. So the primary dates are coming up very quickly in the new year, and actually candidates have to declare for their candidacy starting December 4th. Yeah, and so if you feel like that sounds earlier than you remember, it's because the last state and county election, so talking about 2022, the primaries were pushed back by challenges to the district maps. But this year, it looks like they're going ahead according to plan. So really, especially for someone like Ray Hunter Havens, as soon as the municipal election ends, we get right into the process of the next election cycle. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, the AP recently put out that one in three elections directors in the state have left the job. But Ray Hunter Havens is continuing on. So that will be stability. So is Sarah LeVere in Brunswick County. So we are having some consistency. But I did talk to Ray Hunter Havens about, you know, having enough poll workers. And she is hoping that they will, because as we know, uh, the political climate is tough for some poll workers and for Board of Elections. Um, So it is a tough job. And she's hoping that they'll be able to recruit enough workers to do next year's election. And she did say that she wants to, in January, hopefully do some voter ID presentations. She was talking about having an open house in January. She was even talking about could they get a machine to print IDs for a day for people. So she's got some ideas on how to get the word out about voter ID and and supporting voter access to the materials that they need to vote. And you told me that there are, and we'll have links to these on the show notes, but a number of current or proposed changes to election law And so all of this means that local boards of elections have to scramble and look to the state for guidance about how to pivot and do things differently, maybe. And I will say, Ben, right now that there are open lawsuits right now. The governor filed a lawsuit against this election bill. Lawsuits were filed by Democracy NC and the NC Black Alliance and the League of Women Voters of North Carolina because there were a lot of controversial things in this election bill. Ending that three-day grace period to receive and count absentee ballots, they basically want those absentee ballots counted on election day and not be on that. Ben, you've been looking into the dynamic of the state board of elections with the governor, and that's why his lawsuit is going forward, because he's upset about the makeup of that board. Yeah, I mean, to give you a a very brief version, the new boards of elections are set up to be four members, which will in most cases be two Republicans, two Democrats, which means disagreements at the local level are engineered, basically, to go to loggerheads and then be kicked up to the state board and ultimately the General Assembly if the state board can't figure things out. So this means that issues with how local boards of elections handle these new laws are almost guaranteed to go to 
a higher level. So, And this new board could, they could change how many days that we will have early voting. So that is one thing that they might take up. For sure. So a lot of things in flux that you know we will be covering. And there are likely to be legal challenges against the recently redrawn maps, both for state and federal office that were pushed through by the uh, GOP supermajority in Raleigh. So lots to keep our eyes on. A couple of dates coming up. And this is just to give you a sense of how quickly this is going to happen. I mean, we're almost in December. And in December 4th to December 15th, we get candidate filing. So in mid-December, you'll be hearing from us about who's going to be on the ballot for the primary. And then jumping ahead a little bit, February 15th, early voting starts for the primary. So it sounds like it's far away, but in February, hopefully, you will all be headed out to the polls to vote in the primary, even if you're an unaffiliated voter, because unaffiliated voters can vote in either the Democratic or the Republican primaries. You have a choice. You have a choice. All right. Well, a lot more to come. I know Rachel and I will be on it. All right. Rachel Keith, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right. Well, we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're sitting down with my colleague Kelly Kenoyer to take a closer look at the city of Wilmington race. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for staying with us. Up now, my colleague Kelly Kenoyer and I take a closer look at the city of Wilmington race, where Democrats swept all three seats. We'll take a look at the policies that drove this race and how campaign finance did or maybe did not impact the outcome. Kelly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay. The numbers aren't official, but I feel pretty safe saying that Democratic candidates have swept the race for Wilmington City Council. So I want to unpack a little bit what happened and why and what we can sort of take away from it. You're right. I think it's very clear that the Democrats swept this race. David Joyner was the top vote getter, followed by Celeste Andrews and then Kevin Spears. I will say David Joyner seemed to be far and above the most active candidate that we saw in this race. Um, I saw a lot of people posing for photos with him at tons of different community events. He came to forums that we put on at WHQR, as did Catherine Bruner. But uh, I will say, David Joyner, the effort was very clear. And I think that's a big part of the reason that he was the top vote getter. I think so. Too. I mean, looking at campaign finance, which we can unpack in a second, David Joyner had, I believe, at least 100 um, individual uh, smaller contributions. Um, not to say he didn't get larger contributions from people. And that, to me and to people I've spoken with, seems to represent like that's the fruit of going door to door. That's the fruit of like handshaking at events because these aren't like big donors who are giving to any Democratic Party candidate. The same way, I mean, and on the other side, the GOP also has, you know, big donors who give to any Republican candidate. But this just seems to be the payoff of of groundwork. Also, I mean, we got to just say it. This was a very partisan, nonpartisan race. I mean, the fact that the Democrats were that far ahead and it seemed like they were all fairly in line with each other in terms of the percentage of votes that they got. And all of the Republicans were also fairly similar. There's a difference of about a thousand votes between the top and the bottom of each party. But otherwise, they're kind of moving as an entire grouping. So we can see that a lot of voters went and voted down ballot on their party lines. Yeah. And that that holds true even in more conservative areas like Greenville Loop, Masonboro Loop where Republican candidates like John Lennon and incumbent Neil Anderson and Catherine Bruner uh, took first, second, and third in some order. 
the Democrats were like right behind them um, in the same kind of order. I also thought it was interesting. We should talk about this because there were four Democrats. There were. Uh, Marlo Foster ran as a Democrat, um, but he was not chosen by the Democratic Party as one of the candidates that they supported and endorsed. So he came in last overall in terms of votes that were drawn in. Uh, but he did fairly well in the north side when we look at the precinct area data. Uh, Kevin Spears was the top vote getter in most of those areas. But Marlo was often second or he was coming in fourth instead of in last in those districts. Yeah, it was interesting because the question we had going into this was, would Marlo Foster be a spoiler for David Joyner, Celeste Andrews, and Kevin Spears? Or would he chisel away at Republican votes from Lennon, Anderson, and Bruner? Because Marlo really did more than any other candidate to present himself as sort of a bipartisan candidate. I think the question was, would he get votes from R's and D's uh, everywhere he went, or would he lose votes because he wasn't far enough left or far enough right? Everyone went. And for this election, I got to say, just looking at the numbers, it looks like people weren't in the mood for bipartisan compromise. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, It's honestly kind of hard to tell whether Marlo Foster was pulling away from Democratic votes in most of these districts. The places where he did do well were uh, some of the black neighborhoods on the north side and on the east side. Uh, So it could be that people were voting for demographic reasons. Um, I don't think that Kevin Spears and Marlo Foster are that similar on policy, to be frank. Uh, So it seems like that might be part of the reason. But it could be that Republicans were voting for Marlo Foster. He is a little bit more of a moderate candidate. He has some savvy that could be appealing to both sides. But to be honest, until we get further details, it's hard to say. Yeah, that's a stay tuned. I can say that Foster did do some fundraising among people who usually give to conservative candidates. But again, hold our tongue and get some more details before we go into that. Uh, I do want to talk about campaign financing a little bit because this was kind of a really interesting case study in what campaign financing can and cannot do. I mean, our top fundraiser was John Lennon, and he didn't do all that well in the polls. He wasn't even the number one among the Republicans. That was the incumbent, Neil Anderson. The money he raised didn't go that far in terms of getting him additional votes, as far as we can tell. Yeah, the really striking contrast here is $106,000 raised by John Lennon, didn't get him, like you said, even didn't even get him into fourth place. Whereas Kevin Spears, who raised, uh, we don't have his final uh, campaign finance form, but we have one from 35 days out, which showed he had raised exactly $0. And Kevin Spears did quite well. I mean, it's a flashback to 2019, where he also had very limited fundraising and, and won election. And if you look at the other candidates, there is a spread, but the field isn't that far apart. You know, on the high end, you have Marlo Foster, who raised, you know, over $35,000, but clearly that didn't translate into votes. And below him, you've got David Joyner, who raised around $35,000, and Joyner did quite well. But again, a combination maybe of fundraising and ground game. Behind him is Catherine Bruner, who raised around $30,000. And then Slit Andrews raised, it looks like, less than $20,000, but did quite well, was the second uh, top vote getter after David Joyner. I do think that's worth noting because I didn't see John Lennon out campaigning all that much. His yard signs went up a certain number of days ahead of the election. Um, I heard a little bit about some door knocking and some uh, postering and flyering going out. But I didn't see him attending events the way that I saw David Joyner attending events. So I think that that ground game and Joyner was 500 votes ahead of Celeste Andrews. So he was a marked difference 
uh, in terms of ground game. And I think that that paid off. I think that we discussed a little bit how local races, that grassroots energy can make a big difference. I also want to talk about the appeal of young candidates. This is something that the GOP and the Democratic Party have both talked about is a need to pivot towards you know, younger candidates finding fresher faces for their policy messages. The two youngest candidates in this race, though, David Joyner and Catherine Bruner, had kind of markedly different outcomes. I mean, Joyner was the top vote getter and, and Bruner fell to second to last place in many cases. Yeah, she was second to last. If Marlo Foster hadn't been there as an outside candidate, she would have been in last place, which you could look at this as just differences between the two candidates, maybe differences between the voters. We've discussed how Catherine Bruner ran a lot of her campaign on Instagram, which we know that voters in these municipal elections skew a little bit older. Maybe they're not as active on Instagram. But I also think it might be a difference in the priorities of the parties. The Democratic Party, as you said, has made a strong case towards bringing in more young candidates. I don't know that that's as important to conservative voters. So we've seen here that the the top vote getter for the conservatives was the incumbent, Neil Anderson. So that's experience. John Lennon also has experience on multiple boards. Catherine Bruner has the least experience and she's the youngest and she had the fewest votes. So read into that what you will. That's true. But by the same token, I got to say, in 2021, the city council election saw newcomer Luke Waddell take the top spot in votes. Um, I think we'd have to do a deeper dive to figure out what's really going on here. And we do hope to eventually get a chance to sit down with New Hanover County Chairman Nevin Carr and get his sense of how this kind of played out. And I'll also say I'm curious to see how social media continues to play a role in our local races going forward. We're a little bit of a sleepy beach town. I mean, we don't have the level of social media campaigning you would see in a larger metro area. I don't know that pays off here yet, but I think that might change over the coming years. You know, I'm also curious about whether it'll be different for an election year that includes a presidential race, for example. I mean, I don't think a whole lot of UNCW students probably pay a ton of attention to municipal politics, but a lot of them do pay attention to presidential and congressional races. So they might vote down ballot and they might pay attention to down ballot races if there's a presidential race that's already drawing their attentions. So we've already said that this was a very partisan, nonpartisan race. And it certainly does look, just looking at the precinct results, that in, in many cases, voters probably went out and voted a slate. You probably have some, again, you have lots of unaffiliated voters. They're the plurality in our city and in New Hanover County, meaning they're the largest single group. But in reality, you really have like left-leaning unaffiliated and right-leaning unaffiliated. So it seems like a lot of people just voted a slate. What's interesting to me is the difference perhaps between what we heard from voters about what they were concerned about and what they were voting for. Looking at what we heard for the community agenda, the top concerns were housing affordability and development. And what we see from the top two vote getters, David Joyner and Celette Andrews, both of them focused pretty strongly on environmental cases. So they were talking about green space. They were talking about overdevelopment, which is a concern that we heard. They weren't talking as much about housing affordability. They had fairly straightforward or limited uh, discussions that they had about housing affordability. David Joyner, he thinks that we should pull back from the development that's going on. So that's a little bit less towards housing affordability in the broader understanding of the economy for housing. I think that's kind of an interesting tell. These environmental concerns might have been more of a make or break concern for a lot of residents. And I did hear from voters that that was kind of their one issue concern. They were going to vote on green space. And David Joyner and Celette Andrews had big arguments where they talked about protecting wetlands, protecting tree cover. Those are things that matter to a lot of these municipal voters. And they are things that city council can do. I also think to a certain extent, 
focusing on the environment as a broader existential issue attracts voters, even if city council can't do anything about it. I mean, city council can make moves, but we're talking about big global processes. So I think some of it is just, as the kids say, voting on vibes. Vibes-based voting. Vibes-based voting. I will also say that, look, all of the candidates, we don't want to beat up anyone in particular, all ran headlong into the same issue, which is that no one disagrees that we're in the middle of an affordable housing crisis. What people are debating is, okay, we need, let's say, roughly 20,000 units of variable types of affordable housing. Where should it go? Almost every candidate punted on this answer. Catherine Brunner did give us a pretty straightforward answer. She just said, my mind goes to Midtown. And Slit Andrews said, you know, this only makes sense if you think about it paired with transit. You know, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, essentially, you've got to put people where transit goes and you've got to send transit to where people are. But at the end of the day, all of these candidates ran up against, let's just say it, nimbyism, because everyone agrees we're in an affordable housing crisis. Everyone agrees we need more housing units. No one really seems to want those new housing units in their backyard, especially if it's big multifamily apartment buildings, which from everything that you've reported on and everything we've been able to read and everything we've been able to ask experts on this stuff, there's no way to get to 20,000 units one row home at a time. It's got We need like we need a lot of units. I think given the comprehensive plan, a lot of these apartments are still going to be going through. But I'm curious to see if they have new requirements or new opportunities for affordability requirements for some of these apartments for those density bonuses. This is something that we've heard a lot of people support. Kevin Spears, for example. Uh, so interested to see if this makes any meaningful difference with these these two new votes. Absolutely, because it is one thing to campaign and thread the needle between nimbyism and the need for more units. It's another thing to sit up there on the dais with six other members of city council and try to actually craft you know, ordinances and resolutions and plans to find a way out of the housing crisis that we're in. So put a pin in that one. And also stay tuned for a deeper demographic dive. We hope to get some more detailed information and help better understand this race and next year's race. But for now, Kelly Kinoyer, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, we need to take another quick break, but when we come back, we're sitting down with Jill Hopman, chair of the New Hanover County Democratic Party, to talk about her big wins in the city of Wilmington race. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for staying with us. Up now, an interview with Jill Hopman. She's the chair of the New Hanover County Democratic Party. And a quick note here, we also invited Nevin Carr, who is the chair of the Republican Party, on this show. He declined, citing a very busy schedule. We understand that, and we hope to hear from him on a future show. But for now, Hopman is here to talk about her party's sweep of the city of Wilmington race and what it might mean for future races. Jill Hopman, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So safe to say Democrats did pretty well in the city of Wilmington race. But these wins come after what some people might have called a gamble. You had a particular strategy for narrowing your field from four Democratic candidates to three Democratic candidates because there were only three seats up for election. Can you give us a little bit of backstory about this decision? Sure. I mean, looking at the past elections, we have cost ourselves seats, particularly in 2021, basically by running too many candidates for, you know, a limited number of spots. And it has diluted our votes, split them. 
especially in 2021, Paul Lawler lost by I think it was 240 something votes. Our fourth candidate had over 4,000 votes and it undoubtedly probably cost him that seat. And I like winning and I refuse to set us up for the same thing again. And I thought this just mathematically speaking was the best thing we could do because I do believe elections are a math problem. And this would put our candidates in the strongest position to win. And I do think it worked, honestly, better than I even expected it to. So since you do feel vindicated for this, you know, obviously next year there will be a primary, so you won't have to, you know, engineer a straw poll or anything like that. But in future years, you feel like this would be the right approach? I think that we will stick with this. I I do. Um, We can't do any kind of endorsement process in uh, any election that has a primary. So, you know, that will shake itself out in 2024. But in the next, next municipal race, if this happens again, where we do have too many candidates, then yes. But I also say we're going to concentrate on building a bench and trying to develop candidates in advance. And hopefully, you know, if we only had three candidates in the race, we would not have done this. It was necessary based on who had filed. Can you say, like, what does it mean to develop a candidate? We've had to settle in the past often when somebody has run simply under our Democratic name. I think it's important, and the municipal races showed how a well-balanced slate that appeals to all. You know, we had Celette Andrews was appealing to women and progressives, and she had been a former elected before. I think she ran a very professional, well-run race. David Joyner appealed to young people and, again, progressives and environmentalists and the UNAs. And then we had Councilman Spears appeal to the African-American community, a critical sect to winning elections in Wilmington. And I think that ticket overall was important, also that it didn't have any real estate or development candidates on it. And I think I would like to try to mimic that, especially for school board and commissioner, in a, a balanced ticket that appeals to all. And getting those pieces in place is it, it's it's a process. And this year, you know, we were very tight because we were all elected and the municipals were a couple of months away. This will have more time and we're going to start putting a real process in place to develop a bench, work with candidates, put them in the right places and meeting the right people. So hopefully this will be an easier process in the future. So you bring up developers that was clearly in the air for this election to the point that Republican incumbent Neil Anderson actually put in his campaign video a disclaimer. I am not in the real estate world. Why do you think that sort of had so much juice this election? Honestly, I don't think that I gave it enough credit until afterwards and reading people's message boards and and comments how much I, I do think it's almost a bipartisan issue that people believe Wilmington has been overdeveloped, that realtors, real estate and development companies have too much power, influence, money, that they kind of run things. And stepping away from that I think mattered a lot to the electorate that we need a new set of people, some fresh faces we can trust that are outside this one industry that seems to dominate everything throughout the city. I am curious if you have any insight into why does that not seem to affect our longest serving mayor, uh, Bill Sappho? I think that longtime incumbents like Mayor Sappho, like District Attorney Ben David, I think they have worked very hard to build up a following, a base, people trust them on both sides of the aisle. I do not know if the same case would be true now if a real estate or developer ran for mayor next cycle. We did a pretty deep dive into campaign financing. And I think you know one of the most conspicuous parts of this election was John Lennon standing head and shoulders above every other candidate, in fact, several candidates combined, 
in terms of campaign fundraising, raising over $100,000 and losing. And then you compare that to Kevin Spears, who raised almost nothing. Sort of a repeat of the 2019 election, where again, he raised very little money and, and did quite well. Are there lessons to take away from that? Because certainly, uh, Celette Andrews and David Joyner did, you know, fundraise pretty strongly, um, sort of in the middle of the pack. So how do you think about that campaign fundraising piece now? I definitely think I'm one of those people that do think that politics costs money. You do need to raise money. You need a way to just to get out the vote to pay for messaging and media. At the same time, money raised must translate into votes. And I was surprised by the amount of comments on the Republican side that, you know, we told you that we did not want developers or real estate. Read the room and listen to us. This is why we didn't vote. Look, if you look at our fourth candidate, you know, he, I think, was very proud that he got Republican money. I think that money probably cost him more votes on our side than it gained him votes that were moderate or bipartisan or whatever. Again, I think that money must translate into votes, and that means targeting specific groups and how you spend that money. And I just... I don't think the money was spent well the cycle. Another another part of this, too, is that we got an interesting email from Lynn Barbie, uh, who's the unaffiliated mayor down in Carolina Beach. And he had kind of mixed feelings about, I guess, the stepped up role of the parties, specifically in Carolina Beach, but also more generally around New Hanover County. Part of that is his concern about what it will mean if, you know, party assisted funding starts going to these races. On the other hand, he did point out that it could help boost voter turnout, which would be great since it's hovering around a depressing 25% or less. Yes. So do you give any credence to that idea that, you know, we've lost something when the parties get heavily involved in what's technically a nonpartisan race? And I'm obviously asking you this as the chair of a party. Um, I mean, these are obviously partisan races. They Whether they have the letters next to their name or not, I actually met with Mayor Barbie, super happy that he was reelected. I think that Carolina Beach is different than Wilmington in the sense we purposely didn't endorse there. It probably would have hurt him if we endorsed him there. It matters to be independent. It matters that he runs down the middle. And I think that some people were, as you said, questioned the the role of the party in a nonpartisan election. Reality is this was partisan. Like there were clear Democrats and clear Republicans running. <clears throat> My job is to win elections and build a party. So we are going to support the best candidates we can, regardless of where they live. At the same time, I understand the pros and cons that it's not always helpful to broadcast that you are a Democrat. In Brunswick County, half of their candidates don't run on purpose as a Democrat because it would turn off a lot of the their voter base. So I think it's also about strategy. For us, strategically, supporting three Democrats and pushing voters to support those three. It worked out well. We will not change that. Looking forward to the next election cycle, which starts shockingly soon. Oh, my God. In a few weeks. Hope you can catch your breath. Uh, honestly, I was surprised because in the, when I, the 2022 cycle, because of the lawsuits going on, it was all pushed back. I did think we had more time than this. It is crazy that we have to figure out our entire slate in the next three weeks. But we are doing, we are making great progress on that. And I think that we will have a really good, diverse appeal to all like city council slate again. I want to ask about county elections versus city elections. The city of Wilmington, and this is not truly out of the ordinary, where you have urban areas that lean left and have more Democratic voters. The county has more conservative voters, even if they're conservative minded, unaffiliated voters. 
How do you kind of course correct for that? Because you want candidates, I assume, that represent the people that they're being elected by. I do think you have a bigger voting base in a county election that exactly what you're saying. There are more conservative voters. There are more moderates. You have to have a message that appeals to more people than just city and hard-leaning Democrats. I think that has to be taken into account with messaging overall. I mean, I think in general, our messaging needs to be a much greater appeal to all. I think we made a mistake in, in 2022 by making it by stressing abortion as one of the main issues. And that clearly did not work with the whole county in the way that we hoped or wanted it to, or as we had seen in other states. I think the black community in particular was anemic to that message. And I think that we have to figure out a message that speaks to all, whether that is women's rights paired with jobs, transportation, housing. It needs to be a much more well-rounded message that does appeal to all different factions of the greater county. Looking at the maps right now, Senate District 7, which is New Hanover County's state Senate district, has a shark bite out of it that's shaped like downtown Wilmington, a solid core of blue Democratic voters. Is that still a winnable race? I think based on the maps right now, especially, I mean, I knew the maps were going to be bad when I saw them, especially in New Hanover County. I was shocked at how, just how bad that they were. I, I can't believe how racially gerrymandered the Wilmington Notch has become. And I was told in 2022, when they just moved four precincts into Senate District 8 in Brunswick, don't worry, they're going to overturn this. It was seen as extreme racial gerrymandering in 2019, and then they let it go forward. This is like every downtown precinct. The majority of African-American voters have been moved into Brunswick County where their votes will be washed. I think that we will have a lawsuit coming. I think it'll be a very strong one based on the Voting Rights Act, um, as we've seen the Supreme Court uphold in other states. Um, right now, I think Senate District 7 is, is going to be a difficult race, much harder than it would have been two years ago. We will definitely be pushing the state races. But are we also going to focus on races that I feel like we have a good chance to win, like commission and school board, and localize and personalize these races like we did for city council? Yes, and I hope that that also gets people to vote entirely up and down the ballot. You mentioned county commission race and school board race. We've talked about this before. This is my opinion, but I don't think I'm alone in saying that the school board race felt more ideologically heated than the county commission race. It's not that there aren't ideological decisions made by the county commission and there aren't procedural decisions made by the school board, but in general it felt that way. Do you think that's still the way it's going to go down next year? Yes, I do. I think that especially with the progressives and UNAs, they, the school board is extremely important to them. There is a large section of voters in Wilmington that that is their core, main, number one issue. I think we made a mistake in the last cycle, and I'm really proud of our candidates for city council. I think our candidates last year ran almost as opponents with each other. There was no joint platform of messaging. It's not like we ran against book bans, against gender policies, against this MAGA extremism you now see on the school board. I think, one, we need to have a redo and try to claw our way back from that. I think people were shocked and extremely disappointed with the results. I was embarrassed by the results last cycle. I think we need to change that. I also think the city council race shows what happens if we can all get on the same page and issue-oriented campaigns and running as teammates and partners as opposed to opponents. 
I think that made a very big difference. I think people will mobilize around the school board, especially based on all of the extreme changes they've made this year. And hopefully we will get these three seats and then claw back the majority in 2026. A lot of people have suggested that both parties need to pivot towards younger candidates. At the same time, it is hard to find young people who have the time and wherewithal to be a amateur politician whose government salary does not cover the cost of living anywhere, let alone in New Hanover County. So, I mean, just be candid, how the hell do you find someone who's willing to step into that fray? Well, we got very lucky with David Joyner, who was a wonderful young candidate. I think that he has inspired other young people. We're definitely looking at candidates in his age range and trying to get them on board. I think a hard thing for young people, too, is they're balancing careers. The reason I can be as active is because I work for myself. But when I was an attorney coming out of law school, it would have been a different story. I was working, you know, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So I think that comes into factor. And like you said, you get paid almost nothing. I do think that, you know, you want talent, just like teachers. You want talent, then you must pay to be a professional so it's open to anybody. I also think, and I have been told not to say this publicly, but I think Wilmington likes shiny new toys. I think that they like unknowns, that they're willing to take a chance on people that they don't know, that hasn't disappointed them yet, that has not angered some sect of the county or city. And I think that David was a perfect example. I mean, I think he was special. I don't know if everybody will be as well-spoken and polished as he's, you know, a litigator, a prosecutor. But I think that he was a great example, and I'm hoping that other people will follow in his footsteps. Last question about, you know, this upcoming election, and that is election security. I would not be surprised if people question the integrity of the election process in 2024 in a way that's either just doing it in the public square or actually taking legal action or administrative action. And I think that this is now a platform that we've seen from the Republican Party, but I think it is a trap they have set for themselves, or I think it is very far overblown. A, we have a wonderful board of elections that is bipartisan, that you can trust. They are phenomenal and they work really, really hard. If you look at a lot of comments and, and Republican circles, it is essentially, until you fix 2020, I'm not voting. There is no evidence that there was any substantial fraud in 2020. And this, they, they can go with this argument. I, I'm happy for them to continue it. I think it is turning off their own voters from going to the polls. So sure, I 100% think we're going to see this. I think we see Trump already planting the seeds that 2024 is already a fraudulent and corrupt. I have to say, I heard uh, Nick Craig, who's a conservative radio host, say the exact same thing, which is not something I can say about you and Nick Craig very often. But he was saying, you know, Republicans or conservative voters who have decided to opt out because they feel like the game is rigged are shooting themselves in the foot. I'm paraphrasing here. But he was very frustrated with conservative voters who had decided to just not go to the polls. I think it's fascinating that I'm now seeing a concerted effort by the Republican Party to get people to the polls in early voting. I was just that was going to be what I brought up, that they did this to themselves with mail and voting, too. They used to have an advantage over us. And then they made a big deal over how you can't trust these ballots. And now they're trying to get back in that game because I feel like they realize that they've given up some kind of advantage or took a step backwards for their own prospects and goals. Again, I don't believe we have the same issue. I don't believe that most Democrats do think elections are fraudulent because they're not, just factually speaking. This is how they want to go forward and scare voters or fear mongering. Then 
that is their strategy. I don't believe it is a smart one. I will say that as an unaffiliated journalist, I would just like to see anyone who wants to be able to vote, vote. And and that includes people who are discouraged from voting by misinformation. I say this all the time. I'm voter... Board of Elections issues are my personal passion and voter protection kind of stuff. I would help any Republican register to vote. I believe everybody – I'm a human rights attorney. I still deal with cases where people are desperately risking their lives for pro-democracy, whether it's in Burma or other places. I believe our ability to vote here is a great privilege and everybody should take advantage of this one small voice we have to control government. I would help anybody vote. I would. I think that is a great place to leave it, unless you have any closing thoughts. The only other thing I want to add is just, yes, I created this endorsement process, but I am incredibly lucky. Our officers, it is like a professional staff. Um, Sam Pierce, our first vice chair, he organized Wilmington and brought out the precincts and new voters in a way. Sam and I ran together as chair and first vice chair, and I'm not sure I even know how excellent he is as an organizer until this cycle. Jim Flagel, our second vice chair, who is our data guru, I call him the Dumbledore of data, he created such an ambitious, well, well-rounded get-out-the-vote plan that then Sam and our secretary, Rachel Hatfield, who is not just the secretary, she wore so many hats, like a professional communications, my chief of staff, our, I was very, very lucky to have such amazing people to work with. And I think that we are in a really good place because we all bring our certain skills to the table and we all bring very different things to the table and we made a really good team. And I'm excited about 2024 because we're going to do this on a much bigger scale starting tomorrow. So I'm very excited. Thank everybody for voting, our candidates, our volunteers, our voters. I'm very proud to be chair of this party. All right, Jill Hotman, chair of the New Hanover County Democratic Party. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. All right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this edition of the Newsroom. I want to thank my colleagues Kelly Kenoyer and Rachel Keith for being here today, along with Democratic Party Chair Jill Hotman. Thanks also to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Mark Brady. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.